Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's good to be back with you this evening. If you will turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, we're going to notice, beginning of verse 17, we're going to look at that verse and through verse 20 of that chapter. I must say how much I am grateful for this opportunity to be with you in this time that we have to be together. We hope that our efforts have been beneficial to you and that the subjects that we've covered, we have covered them as well as we possibly can. And through our efforts, we have learned more about the things that were stressed and were given to us by inspiration through Jesus regarding the Sermon on the Mount. I appreciate the opportunity to come and to be a part of this effort that you're putting forth. And I know that you have learned greatly and you've been strengthened by your subjects that you've covered, and I have thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to study this even more thoroughly and to know more about the things that Jesus has stressed, pertaining particularly, as we talked about this morning, the idea of living the sermon at school. There have probably been times where you have been working with someone or a company, or you may have even seen people working. And you may have had a passing thought that just said, if I were working for that company, and if I were in his position or her position, this is what I would do. And you probably would think, too, that if you were in that position, you would make it better. And you would have in your mind all these things that you would do to make it better. And you would wonder what it would be like to work in that position that they're in, so that you could do the things that you knew would be greater and better and would surpass what those people were doing that would lead to the benefit of the company. You knew you could do much better than they were doing. Well, as a Christian, you have a chance. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Think not that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth shall pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass away from the law, till all things be accomplished. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I say unto you, that except the righteousness shall exceed the righteousness, your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. You as a Christian have your chance to see what you can do to surpass righteousness. You have probably been one of these individuals who have cringed at the idea of hypocrisy. You see it. You've watched the effects of it. You've been a witness of the results and the consequences of hypocrisy. And you begin to look at those things and how ungodly people behave, indecently people behave in the kingdom of the Lord, and you're saying, if I were them, this is what I would do. And if I were that person, I would make things so much better. And I can't see why they can't make things better for themselves. In your own life, you have this opportunity to make things better. You have the opportunity as an individual who's a Christian 
to make things better as a result of you seeing more people discouraged than encouraged, you have the opportunity to do it by surpassing righteousness. There is a contrast that I see demonstrated in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not Jesus coming on the scene saying, okay, okay. I think there are some things that I think are better than what you're listening to. He's not coming along saying there's something better than the Old Testament law. He's coming along as what you're seeing in verse 17, verse 18. He's doing everything he can to fulfill what's mentioned there. He's, you've got two contrasting views. One individual, one group of individuals, I would say, the Pharisees, they're the kind of people who they exalt self-righteousness more so than they do the righteousness which is of God. It's kind of like the situation you see in the book of Romans chapter 10 and verse 3. They don't really know the righteousness of God. They've got their own development of righteousness that they think is going to be pleasing unto God and it's going to be something everybody else is going to accept too. There are going to be individuals who, when you look at these individuals in Romans chapter 2, they can talk to you about the law all day. They knew it up one side down the other. They could boast about the things of the law. They could glory in this law. This is a wonderful covenant that God's made with us. But there was something in what they said was true, but something in what they did was totally opposite. They were living up to the things that they said ought to be followed. You just have to cringe at that kind of thought. The people wanting to preach to you something and talk to you about something that's found within the context of the Scripture, but they just don't live it. They talk about spirituality, but that's just uh, foreign to their lifestyle. Oh, yes, they could be the individuals that you go to the book of Matthew chapter 5, and it says in verse 27, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and they'll tell you that all day. But they'll be the ones who would look at something that involved adultery. They will be the individuals that would talk to you about not murdering, but they forgot all about hatred and bitterness and animosity, all those things that led up to it. They could even be the ones who would talk to you about fasting and praying. And how important we'd be to give everything that you've got, as much as you could. But they would do it in front of everybody else. But they failed to, many times, look at those things as something that would bring them closer to God. They were just trying to make themselves accommodative to the minds of the people. I think we would do well to think about how it is that they would be the people who say, oh, that law is spiritual, like Romans chapter 7, verse 14 says, but boy, I tell you, spirituality was not part of their lifestyle. They just weren't living up to that. So you've got a contrasting view of what righteousness is all about in the Pharisees, but then you've got Jesus. Jesus is one of these individuals who many people look at as the righteousness of God. And indeed they should, but there's some thought about that that, seems to be a problem. Many times when they look at this idea of Jesus being the righteousness of God, there's not really anything that we need to show in righteousness. There, really, Jesus is not concerned about our obedience. It's all about Him. It's about His righteousness and what He did, what he did for us on the cross. And all because of His righteousness, we're saved. Therefore, as a result of that, all you need to have is just this real heartfelt feeling of love and emotion toward Jesus because of all that he's done. And make sure you've got that emotion and that, that heartfelt feeling of love in your heart always. Well, I want, you to, I want you to know something about emotions. And I want you to know something about so-called heartfelt love. 
that sometimes people have? There are a lot of people that one day they feel one way about things emotionally, and the next day they may feel something else emotionally about something else, or maybe the same thing. So if you base your relationship of righteousness based upon a heartfelt, emotional type thing, you could be in it one day, you could be out of it the next day. It could be one of these up, day, up days and one day could be down day. The idea of being righteous, the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, like the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 21 stresses, it is true that Jesus is the righteousness of God, but it's demonstrated in Him. And it's in us where that pattern needs to be living. Jesus is the one that showed us. It's not just important that you make sure you worship the right God, but that you live for God. It's who you're living for. And I think that's so important in the life of Jesus that He shows us that. Especially when it comes down to the law. He will go around preaching it and teaching it. He will go around fulfilling it more so. But even as it says, even the least of these, he says in verse 19, needs to be considered. He says, and shall teach men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, who does not consider the things that are in the commandments of God. So Jesus would say, everything about the law needs to be observed. The people need to be looking at this. It's not just a preacher thing. It's not an elder thing. It's not a teacher thing. It's an everybody thing. If you're going to be a member of the kingdom of the Lord, we've got to look at righteousness and surpass the righteousness of God. And so there's two phrases that you can see Jesus using. You heard it said. You will turn around and say, but I say unto you. Interesting. He's not going to change anything. He's going to add to. I look at the Sermon on the Mount maybe a little bit differently than most people do. All the Sermon on the Mount is to me is an extension of and the reality of what God told Moses to do the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Yes, don't kill. Yes, don't commit adultery. Yes, find yourself not coveting. All those things. But yet, you need to love God. That's going to be the basis of you fulfilling the commandments of God. That's the idea of surpassing righteousness. Just don't let it be on the surface. Let it be down deep. Because I'll tell you something. When it comes down to this idea of the individual who's righteous, here's the application of, of all this whole thing to us. If we're the individuals who cringe at this idea of hypocrisy, then we're the individuals that need to remove this desire to develop our own righteousness. And what we think is right, and look at it based upon what is right. But that means we've got to obtain the knowledge of God's righteousness in order to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Stop looking at God's law as one of these things we're going to traditionally hold on to and we're going to make sure we obey it. Substitute the idea of holding on to the law as a tradition, but hold on to the law as something you love. In the book of Psalms, not just in Psalms 19, but in Psalms 119, Proverbs 97 says it better. Oh, how I love thy law is my meditation all the day. But in Psalms 19, verse 7, verse 14, David gives you all the many characteristics of what the law can do for people. It surpasses our expectations many times of what keeping the law and doing the law says for us to do. 
if we're one of these individuals that holds on to the law as just as a traditional thing, as something we're going to pass on from this generation to this generation, what happens to be is a burden to us. We're going to hold on to it as something, in many cases, I don't know if I've got the time to do this or not. I've got something else I need to be doing. I don't, I think God's expecting a little bit too much out of me right here in this particular idea. I don't know if I can live up to this kind of thing. This is kind of unreasonable. I'm kind of tired. But if the love of God and the law of God is there, then it's not going to be a burden to us. It's not going to be grievous. We're going to enjoy every opportunity to do it. There are so many people in this world that say, if you can't enjoy it, don't do it. Where does the idea of duty ever come into play? You think about those people that are in Iraq, people in Afghanistan, people that are Christians who are serving our country, people who are serving our country. Do they do it all then because they love to do it? Oh, they love their country. Sometimes they do what they do because it's their duty to do Parents who discipline their children, they do it because they love, but sometimes they do it because of their duty to do it. We do what we do many times because we enjoy doing it. Do you discipline the wayward members because it's your duty, your love to do it? You do it because it's your duty to do it. There's going to be the difference between our righteousness and the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees. And a lot of it is based upon two things. Number one, it has a lot to do with the fact that this whole idea of being righteous, has to do with pleasing God. Pleasing God must be our utmost priority. Look at with me in the book of Jeremiah, for example. Jeremiah chapter 9, you want to know something with me, verse 23 and verse 24. Thus said Jehovah, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. He even said this, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him be glorious, glory in this, that he hath understanding and knoweth me, that I am Jehovah, who exerciseth loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says Jehovah. You know what this is all about? This is all about me understanding God. This is all about Him. This is not about me. It's not about you. It's all about God. If you go to the New Testament, you will notice something in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. That he mentions in verse 8 and verse 9, and it's so eloquent in the way in which he states this. In our relationship to God, he does, says, don't be a fornicator, don't be an adulterer, no unclean man, no uncovetous man. No one of these individuals will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says in something in verse 6, let no man deceive you with empty words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. But he says, be not therefore partakers with them, but you that were in darkness... But on our light in the Lord, walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is well-pleasing unto the Lord. This is all about God. It's not about me. Everyone prayed about this just a little bit ago. This, we're, we're here to worship God. This is not to make sure the elders know that I'm here and the deacons up back in the back checking my name off because I'm here. This is all about God. This is being well-pleasing unto Him. God is the one to be glorified, not me. That's why Matthew chapter 5 says what it says in verse 16. That the works that we do are to glorify Him. It's all pointing up to Him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did no different. In the book of John chapter 8, 
in verse 29, He did all that would be well-pleasing unto Him. In John chapter 17, verse 4, He wanted all glory to come unto God. And here we are as individuals, when we go past the book of Acts, we're exhorted with admonition on top of admonition to do all that we do to the glory of God. Colossians chapter 3, 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31. And eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything we're, we're continually admonished. Let all this be done to God's glory. This is not about who's eloquent. This is not about who has more knowledge of Greek. This is all about you pleasing God. Living for the flesh, for the admiration of the people in the audience. Living for my lust. I don't have the Spirit of God. And as it says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 8, I can't please God that way. It doesn't work. Never has and never will. The bottom line is, wherever we are, we're going to please God. Whether in body. Absent from the body, it's going to be glory to God. The book of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9 talks about it. So the first thing that we need to understand about this idea of surpassing righteousness is that what we're doing is all for God. It's all about, it's all about Him. It's not about me. Not about me. But then there's another thing I want you to think about with me. This idea of surpassing righteousness has a lot to do with being excellent rather than being average. I want you to think about that just a minute with me. There are a lot of people in this world that have this great tendency to look at things and put all these things together, total them up, divide them by the number which they're totaling up, and then average that and say, that's, that's average, that's the mean, that's the median. You know, that's the thing that we want to do is we want to figure out how many people go down a certain road at a certain period of time of the day. We want to know how many people there are that watch TV between the hours of 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. We want to know how many people are, there are that have a certain average in the World Series that we saw many, many times. Every time a batter got up there, you saw his average in the World Series compared to, and in contrast to many times, his average in the year. Even the pitchers, ERA, all those are averages. And we've got to the point where we're looking at so many things in life by averages. That's just about the way we've come to feel. That if we are in the range, the average range of everybody else, then we, we should be okay. We should be all right. As long as we get by, as long as everything's okay, then we're the average person. We should be accepting what's average. And I'm here to tell you tonight, you should never, ever accept the average. Especially when it comes down to being a Christian. You need to look for, expect, want, and desire nothing less than excellence. Because that's what the Scripture teaches. No matter how average people may be. I think we would do well to understand a case in the book of Revelation chapter 3 in verses 14 to verse 16. A church that, if you've read the book of Revelation at all, you know regarding the seven churches, there's one of them that wants to be average, that has the desire to be average. And you look at that from the standpoint of what he says. In verse 15, he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou work cold or hot. So because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. They want to be the average. But the average is unacceptable. And you know that because he says to them that they need to be the individuals who in a few verses later he says, in particular in verse 19, repent. If average was okay, 
the middle of the road was okay, we would say, striding, striding the fence was okay, then this would be all right. But he says, no, I want you to repent. I want you to change. So the average is not acceptable. Never has been, never will be. So when you go back to the book of Matthew chapter 5, and you look at verse 20, unless we surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, we find ourselves not being members of the kingdom of the Lord. In other words, average is unacceptable. So if you look at what the Scripture says in the book of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, you find a situation where it says conformity. Be not conformed to this world. Conformity to the world is average. Smell like, do like, act like, look like everybody else. That's conformity. That's average. But you go on down a little bit further, in the same verse he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what excellence is all about. That's surpassing righteousness. That's going beyond. That's getting better. That's getting, getting to the best. That's letting the cream come to the top. And that's what every Christian ought to be doing. If we're going to surpass righteousness, really, it's the difference between what is easy and what's hard. I got something here that I came across back a little over 11 years ago from a lady who wrote an article in the Tennessean. And she started the article off with the title, The Easy and the Hard. And with that, with what she had, I just added a few things to it. And if you want to copy this, I'll give it to you. Just to get up, go over a few things with you. I want you to understand something. Go is easy. Stop is hard. Sleeping is easy. Waking is hard. Telling a secret is easy. Keeping a secret is hard. And F is easy. And A is hard. Cowardice is easy. Bravery is hard. Average is easy. Excellent is hard. Following is easy. Leading is hard. Criticizing is easy. Taking criticism is hard. Dying is easy. Living is hard. And the list goes on and on. The difference between average and excellent is the difference between what's easy and what's hard. So I want you to think about something with me that goes along with what my two children understood when they started delivering speeches in the 4-H club. And while, you're, while I'm telling you this story, I want you to turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, you will notice in Philippians 1, verses 9 and verse 10, the idea of what we're going to talk about, this idea of admonition of excellence. When my two children first started delivering speeches in 4-H club, it was, a, it was no doubt a struggle to come up with ideas and come up with things. But there's always one thing that really impressed me about the things that the people in 4-H wanted you to do. They wanted you to include certain things in your speech. And one of the things they wanted you to make sure that you included in your speech was the motto of 4-H, making the best better. Those of you that have ever been associated with 4-H, you know that phrase and that motto, making the best better. And every speech they gave, it had that phrase and that motto in it. And that's something that we've always taught our children to do. It's, it's not good to be average. Not that we wanted them to make sure that they made an egg on everything, but yet coming above the average, C is average. And everybody says, oh, I'm so glad I'm in a C. But A is excellent, isn't it? But what does it take to get an A? It takes a lot more work to get an A than it does a C. What does it take to be righteous? Is it like the Pharisees' righteousness, or is it like the Lord's righteousness? Let me ask you this question. If you wanted to be a great basketball player, football player, if you wanted to be a good musician, 
actor, doctor, nurse, elder, preacher, teacher. If you're going to be that kind of person, what are you going to do? Who is it that you're going to look at? Even when it comes down to the idea of being a Christian, what are you going to look at, who you're going to look at in the Scriptures if you want to be the best Christian? Are you going to look at the average or are you going to look at the excellent? Are you going to look over here at Thomas and down in Thomas? Are you going to look at gullible Eve? Are you going to look at vacillating Peter? Who is it that you're going to look at as the average person and say, that's what I want to be? Or is it going to be someone that you're wanting to gain patience? You want to gain patience in your life and you're looking at someone like who? Do you think about looking at Job? If you're looking for courage, you ever think about looking at Daniel? How about forgiveness? Did it ever occur to you to look at Joseph? If you look at the idea of faith, do you look at Abraham? What about being a woman? An excellent woman. Have you ever thought about Proverbs chapter 31, read verse 10 to verse 31, and pattern your life after that woman? You ever thought about being an excellent man and look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 7, the qualifications of an elder? All these people are excellent at what they do and how they live. They're surpassing righteousness. Righteousness of Jesus Christ, and they're letting Jesus Christ be demonstrated in their own life. That's the same thing that holds true with our minds. If you're looking to be the best Christian, who do you want to be like? The average or the excellent? Who are you going to pattern yourself after? Who are you going to be watching? You know the excellent people that you see in the Scriptures are the ones that Matthew chapter 5, 13 talks about and glorify God. They're the likes of the world. Not so everybody can gawk at them, look at them, pat them on the back. But they're trying to glorify God in what they do. They're trying to illustrate. They're trying to illuminate. They're trying to show Jesus in their life. Who are the excellent people that surpass righteousness? They're the people that Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says are peculiar people. They're odd. They are an odd lot. There's no doubt that if the majority of the people are average, then if you're an excellent person, then you are an odd person. But they're special. Because 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 10 says, God called them to be special. Elect race. Royal priesthood. Holy nation. That's a special group of people. And no doubt when you read the book of Titus chapter 2, verse 12, when it comes to real living and a better life, these people that are excellent people, they're not trying to show everybody it's a better life that they, they have because they're Christians. They're going to be financially better, socially better, academically better. The excellent Christian is the one that's going to live godly and soberly, righteously in this present world. That's what excellence is all about. That's surpassing righteousness. That's who excellent people are. Now, let's get out there and see if we can't be excellent. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can talk about it, how excellence is going to be demonstrated in our life, but I want to give you just three of them before we close the lesson tonight. The first one is the idea of occupation. We need to be in occupation, and I'm not going to kind of, kind of bleed over or cover over what Robert Davenport covered last week on the idea of work and job. But when you look in the Scriptures... 
And I remember Matthew chapter 5, 47 saying so clearly to me, and when he talked about the idea of loving your enemies, doing more than others, he says, do you more than others? What do you more than others, he says? So when it comes down to this occupation, we should be more diligent. We should be more honest. We should be more faithful in every aspect of our work. More. Not just average. Oh, we're going to come in at 7 o'clock just like everybody else does. There's more to it than just coming in at 7 o'clock like everybody else does. It's just like Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. What serve thy hand findeth to do? Do it with thy mind. So you're the individual who thinks more of what you do than everybody else thinks of what you do. You appreciate what it is you get to do. Every minute, every day, every hour, what you do is to the glory of God. As first excuse me, Colossians chapter three, verse seventeen says. I'm the individual that's trying my very best at what I do. To demonstrate excellence in what I do. And in the book of Ephesians, you will notice in chapter 6, reading in verse 5 to verse 8, the idea of what it takes to be an excellent person who is occupying a position. Whether you're the employer or employee, you don't have to be excellent. You don't have to demonstrate excellence and be a boss doing it. You can demonstrate excellence by being the employee. Now, true, it may be that you may advance to the point of being the boss as a part of your excellence, but you don't necessarily have to be the boss to be excellent. What you need to understand is this whole idea of occupation is no matter who's working, what position they're working, we're all working for God. Even if the boss is away, I'm still working for Jesus. Even if nobody's taking account and following up on my work, I'm still working for Jesus. So I ask you the question, Matthew chapter 5, verse 47, ask, what do ye more than others when it comes down to your occupation? We need to be more excellent when it comes to morals, too. To be like everybody else is to be average. And it's to be like everybody else. And we've got to come above the idea of being like everybody else because being like everybody else their idea of morality is based upon polls and votes and majority. And their idea of morality is based upon numbers. So the more people that do it, the more it should be acceptable. Therefore, it should be something that everybody does and participates in. But that's not the standard by which you determine what's moral. The thing about it is, God does not like for there to be a wedge driven between you and He. So in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, we need to do whatever we can to get rid of that defilement, get rid of whatever it is that stands between us and God. In other words, we're going to narrow the gap that exists between us and God. And there's a lot of people in this world that don't care how wide the gap exists. And some people that are in Jesus Christ, pray tell you, are the individuals who don't care either how far that gap is either. If you're going to be more excellent, this idea of morals, you're going to have to be the one who's going to narrow the gap between you and God. And you're not going to be satisfied until the gap gets so, so small. You can't see it. If you were to read the book of Philippians chapter 3, 
and read from verse 12 to verse 14 and read about the Apostle Paul, he was one of these individuals who stretched forward, not that he had already attained, which tells me that he did not like the gap where it was. He wanted to narrow the gap between he and God so that he could see more of God than he could see of what existed between him and God. And so we're going to be the individuals, hopefully, who ask ourselves the question when it comes down to morals, what do you do more than others? And number three, when it comes to marriage, we need to demonstrate excellence. There are several people that are dealing with divorces, separations, live-ins, all kinds of situations where there's a lot of people who are dealing with troubling times with relationships between men and women. And it, let me add something else to that. Researchers have found out, if researchers are true, this idea of marriage, that there's only about a 5% of all marriages that exist are fulfilling and satisfying. And you might want to put your marriage in that one, that 5% and a lot of other people's marriage in that 5%. But I'll tell you what, when you think about all the many marriages in this world, there's not many that it's going to take to add up to that 5%. So what does that mean everybody else's marriage is? 90 to 95% of the marriages in the world are average. Where are those people that are Christians? The people that are married in the church here at Franklin Church of Christ need to be the marriages that are excellent. Why? Because my children need to see it. I don't know if Edwin, Edwin wants his children to see it, and I don't know if any of you other parents want your children to see it, but I want my, my children to see an excellent marriage. I don't want them seeing average marriages. I have, to, I have to tell this story. I started out to tell this story, but I had to. My daughter called me on the phone this week and told me about a preacher that was up there where she was attending church in Bowling Green, Kentucky, in a gospel meeting. And she told me about this husband, about this man who's a preacher. The husband and his wife were there. It just so happened his wife came along with him. And she went up to her, the wife, my daughter did, to talk to her about how glad she was to see her there with her husband in the, in the meeting. Because she knew then a preacher's child, she knew that I would have to go in the meeting sometimes and my wife would have to be staying home. And she also made a comment to me and she said, when they stood up, before he had to go to the priest, they had the song before the lesson, you know, and then they were holding hands. And she said to me, how much that reminded her of her mom and dad. If she had never seen that between her mom and dad, that's one thing. For her to see it in, the, in somebody else's life, that was so good. I was so glad to know that there's another couple out there besides my wife and I that can demonstrate excellence in a marriage. That's what surpassing righteousness is all about. My children need to see it and your children need to see it. And there's two ways they're going to be able to see it. Number one, your marriage is going to be excellent by your commitment to grow. There's a lady named Barbara Bender who wrote a book entitled, What's a Woman to Do? And this is her definition of a godly marriage. 
It is the total commitment of your total being for your total life. She is telling us that it's the idea of two people who are going to commit themselves to share together for life their commitment to God and their commitment to one another. And they're going to grow in that. And they're going to surpass everybody else because they're going to greatly appreciate what each other does and they're going to respect what each other does. And they're going to share the joys together and they're going to share the sorrows together. And they're going to pay the bills together and they're going to raise the children together. And they're going to worship God together and they're going to keep the flame lit together. The commitment to grow. Number two, communication. There are so many marriages that exist in this world who build a wall between each other so thick it's about like trying to destroy the city of Jericho. You can't even get through it. Nobody can get over it. There's not enough trumpets that can blow that can destroy it. But that barrier exists. The people that are going to be excellent in their marriage are going to have to sit down and share and talk and have conversations in order to know not so they can have something to talk about and criticize them with later, but to know to understand each other. And in the understanding of that, they know what to do next time. They know where there are strengths that this person has that need to be enhanced, and they know where there's weaknesses that need to be considered. If we can in our marriage communicate to the point that we can confess our faults to one to another, like James five sixteen says, we're not going to have an excellent marriage. If we can in our marriage be the kind of situation where we can speak the truth in love, like Ephesians 4, verse 15 says, then we're not going to have an excellent marriage. We're going to have an average marriage just like everybody else. We have got to come to realize that if our marriage is going to be excellent, we're going to have a total purpose. Ask yourself the question in your marriage, like Matthew 5, 47 says, what do you more than others? What do ye more than others? You know, the effects of this idea of surpassing righteousness, doing excellent things, gains great admiration, gains great praise and confidence and imitation in the lives of other people. And I think that's so crucial. That is so crucial. We are the individuals that when you look at Matthew chapter 5, and read verse 17 to verse 20 where it talks about the righteous, righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees must be exceeded. Surpassing that righteousness is a matter of respecting the law even to the least point. Reverencing the law. Looking at the commands of God and loving every bit of it. Showing the excellencies of God. Less like First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 and verse 10 says, Coming up to the top, approving what's right and doing more than everybody else. Not to show them that you can do more than they can, but to show it because you are in a right, a right relationship with God. I want to talk to you just a minute about being baptized versus being a Christian. There are times when people come up to me and they say, I want to be baptized. I need to be baptized. I need to be baptized right now. I do not want to put any light on baptism. It is definitely essential. 
without a doubt for a person to be saved from sin. I got to thinking about that one time. Not to be critical of those people that want to be baptized. But I've yet to have someone come to me and say, I want to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. Sometimes I think the average thing that people talk about and want to be is baptized. Whereas the excellent thing is coming to the point of being a Christian. Truth is, you need to be baptized in order to be a Christian. But you just don't want to be baptized. You don't want to just have your ticket punched so that you can have all the sins removed and so you can go to heaven. You want to be a Christian so you can go to heaven. And that's what we want you to think about tonight, being a Christian. Mark 16, 16 said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And baptism is necessary for sins to be washed away. But being a Christian is what comes after that. And that's what you want to be. Because that person is in Christ. He's in His kingdom. And that person will show excellence. And that person will gain the glory that comes with that excellence. If you are an individual who is a Christian and you think average, getting by, doing just what needs to be done is the best way to be a Christian, then folks, I want you to re-examine that whole process and that concept and get away from that and come to the point of repentance. Don't just have in your mind this Pharisee mentality of righteousness. Exceed that. Look at the law. Love the law. Do the law. Be obedient to the law. Pray to God for forgiveness and be what you need to be. Do what's right. Why together we sing this song.